And we're back on the Zero Hour. I'm your host, Richard R.J. Escal. The situation in Gaza is not just a humanitarian catastrophe and war crime, although it is, as we've been saying, both those things. It is also uh, a significant De potential de or actual destabilization in uh, the situation in the entire region of the Middle East. And here to talk about that with us now, and hopefully give me some insights, is our friend Vijay Prashad. Vijay is director of the Tricontinental Institute for Social Research, and he uh, studies uh, power relationships, international relationships quite carefully. So I'm looking forward to the conversation. First of all, Vijay Prashad, welcome back to the program. Thanks a lot, Richard. Nice to be with you. And you, you know, I look at this and, and I read the various stories in the U.S. press, which, as you know, is uh, you know, like trying to look at the world through those things they give you to watch in Eclipse, you know, with the little narrow slit. The, uh, but one of the things that struck me, at least in terms of U.S. media, is these little tantalizing clues that are kind of dropped in paragraph eight of uh, this article or that article about, you know, a, a border clash of some kind in Lebanon or or some other, you know, or uh, Houthi drones or rockets. Uh, but but. I, I haven't seen any coverage of what uh, this latest wave of violence might be doing to what was already, it strikes me as anyway, a rather precarious, uh, you know, fabric of relationships there. Uh, and I was wondering uh, if you could give us any insight on that. You know, Richard, to, to do that, we have to understand how Arab, Arab populations around um, Israel and Palestine are seeing what's happening in Gaza. Uh, that's the beginning. You know, we have to understand how are they seeing things. But what they are seeing is they are understanding that there is a ruthless bombardment um, that has taken place. And now Merkava tanks all the way at Saladin Street, which divides north and south Gaza. There are Merkava tanks entering from the north, uh, trying to encircle Gaza City, Jabalia refugee camp hit, you know, several hundred people killed in Jabalia. Um, there's another refugee camp in the south. The Borej refugee camp also struck um, just south of, of Gaza City. Um, it's pretty ruthless stuff that's happening in Gaza. Perhaps close to 10,000 people dead, um, half of them children. Now, by any standard, when half of, a, of the people dead are children, they can't have been combatants. These are civilians. In fact, um, when you look at the lists provided by the Gaza Ministry of Health, which have been circulated in the Arab world widely, they have the ages of people. And it's, it's heartbreaking. You know, six months old, two years old, eight years old. These are children. Um, you know, 4,000 or so children killed. UNICEF said this Gaza is becoming a graveyard of children. Very strong language from a United Nations agency. That's how people in the Arab world are seeing it. They're seeing this as a massacre of Palestinian children, of Arab children, and nobody cares. Which is why major demonstrations across the Arab world, in Egypt, the government 
of President Sisi has basically said no demonstrations allowed. Can't control his people. They're out on the streets, small groups, larger groups, and so on. In Jordan, where King Abdullah is married to a Palestinian woman, Queen Rania, there were perhaps a million people on the street of Amman. Can't control that. Queen Rania herself went on Christian Amanpour's show and was very strong, talked about the occupation, talked about the Nakba from 1948, refused to allow the story to begin on October 7th when Hamas broke the fence and came into the various kibbutzim, refused, said that there's a longer history. Um, she is responding to the Arab populations inside Jordan, in Yemen, the Ansar al-Din group, which people call the Houthis, Ansar al-Din has declared war on Israel. A lot of pressure on them from the population of Yemen. Saudi Arabia, Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, under pressure, picks up the phone for the first time since 1979, Richard. He talks to the president of Iran. They talk about how horrendous the situation is. President of Iran turns around and says that Muslim countries need to do something. Lebanon, heart sick population saying we've got to do something. They are waiting on Syed Hassan Nasrallah, the leader of Hezbollah, who commands, you know, ten, uh, tens of thousands of fighters. You know, some people say up to 100,000 fighters, lots of rockets. They haven't let loose yet. And you can see this feeling in the Arab world, because not only in the Arab world, also in Turkey, um, there was a massive rally that Recep Tayyip Erdogan, president of Turkey himself, addressed in Istanbul, maybe a million people, red flags all over the place, where Recep Tayyip Erdogan said Hamas is not a terrorist organization. It's a political organization. He's responding to heart-sick sentiment among the Turks, saying fellow Muslims are being killed. Um, a Palestinian called in to a Turkish radio program, Richard, and he said something powerful. He said, when we are killed, he said, he said, we're all going to die in, in Gaza. When we are killed, we don't want Muslim countries to offer prayers to us, he said. He said, I don't want you to offer prayers because you are already dead. You're not acting for us. You're already dead. That's the sentiment in, the, in and around the Arab world, that sense of helplessness, anger, rage, and so on. And, you know, to wrap this up, what I want to say is that this means that the governments of the region, whether monarchies in Jordan or in Saudi Arabia or the you know old Arab states of Egypt and, and Syria and Lebanon, these governments, they have to at some point respond to their populations. How they respond, that's an open question. Will Egypt and Jordan tear up the peace agreement with Israel? When you get to 20,000 dead, they may not be able to contain their populations. Will Hezbollah let loose his 100,000 fighters, you know, hundreds of thousands of rockets that they'll fire at Tel Aviv? Will, will that happen? Uh, will there be pressure on Saudi Arabia, Qatar and other countries to stop oil shipments to Israel? This entire arsenal, the power that these countries have, has not been um, unfurled as yet, which is why this man tells Turkish television, don't bother to pray for us because you're already dead. He's saying you're not acting and they haven't acted yet, but they might. That's powerful. And, you know, as you were <clears throat> as you were recounting that, Vijay, I was thinking about 
very recent history, really pre-October 7th, uh, the years leading up to it, I was thinking about the fact that first under Donald Trump and then under Joe Biden, uh, a, a sort of new implicit uh status quo was being constructed whereby the and correct me if you think this is wrong but this is my impression whereby the wealthy arab states would do financially advantageous deals of various kinds with israel with full united states support and backing and whatever resources need to be thrown into it the presumption be, and, and and i say pointedly that you know it seems to me that biden has uh, you had continued uh, the the foreign policy of donald trump moving the u.s embassy to jerusalem he, which trump did he kept it there you know multiple things both substantive and and symbolic so it seemed to me in all of this for years that if I was watching this and thinking there was a time when when no Arab country could really uh, uh, ramp up its diplomatic ties with Israel because of the injustices towards Palestine. It seemed to me there was an attempt to construct, build a, a, uh, a financially advantageous Middle Eastern order leaving the Palestine, Palestinians out. And uh, it seemed to me that Saudi Arabia was open to that, some of the other UAE, so on. And now it seems to me because of this uh, that these leaders who might have been willing to uh, abandon the Palestinians and might have been in the process of doing so, uh, no longer have the ability to do that. It, I, I, that's basically a two-part analysis, but uh, what do you think uh, about the first part and the second? Well, what you're referring to are known as the Abraham Accords. Right. And in a sense, the Abraham Accords were quite clever because what the Trump administration did was it went to, in a way, the weakest regimes um, in the Arab world. In other words, the monarchies. It went to Morocco, to Bahrain, Saudi Arabia and opened a conversation saying, listen, guys, why don't you normalize with Israel? There'll be some benefits. But really, the main issue is your monarchies. You don't really have to answer to your street, to the, the populations um, under you. And also, we give you a lot of weapons and you are integrated into our security arrangements. So you want to continue to be under U.S. security. Morocco wants to have um, the Western Sahara which it captured and has a lot of potassium. The United States will recognize your claim to Western Sahara. You have to normalize with Israel. You get weapons. Saudi Arabia, you're already getting weapons. Normalize with Israel. We're going to reaffirm. You know, it'll be we'll we'll do a recommitment ceremony um, like they had in uh, in the Suez Canal. You know, with um, with FDR and 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 King Abdulaziz and so on. Let's do it again. You know, and with Bahrain, well, Bahrain is an appendage of Saudi Arabia. That was the idea. It's a very clever idea. If you peel away Morocco, Saudi Arabia, Bahrain, you've already peeled away Jordan and Egypt. Eventually, Iraq might have to reconsider. You know, if Syria, there was regime change, they might have to reconsider and so on. That, that was the game plan. Clever. I mean, give it to them. Very clever. On building on top of that, because the United States is very anxious about China's Belt and Road project, 
supremely anxious about this. The United States has looked for an alternate way to knit India into trade routes with Europe. I mean, there's already the Suez Canal. So why do you need an alternative? Well, here was a clever political alternative that they unveiled at the G20 meeting in Delhi earlier this year, when Biden and Narendra Modi and, you know, Mohammed bin Salman and others said there'll be a new corridor to Europe, which will go from India to the Gulf Arab states, most likely first the United Arab Emirates. That was one map. From the United Arab Emirates, they would unload goods at the Dubai port. It would go across land in Saudi Arabia, go up into Israel, mind you, through Jordan into Israel, and then from Israel go back in onto boats and go to Europe. Now, when I looked at that map, I thought there's two things strange about it. One is um, that it's not a very convenient route. And also two of the ports in that route already managed by the Chinese. So how is this going around the Chinese? But that's one peculiarity. The second peculiarity is it already assumed that Saudi Arabia had normalized with Israel because mm. goods were going to go through Saudi Arabia into Israel. That's difficult for Saudi Arabia to have allowed unless normalization happened. This was the Biden addition to the Abraham Accords. You know, take the Abraham Accords, the normalization with the monarchies, and then bring trade into it. And there are advantages along these trade routes and so on. Well, in a way, the events after October 7th have not only ended the trade route, it's very unlikely that the crown prince of Saudi Arabia is now going to permit uh, goods to go through Israel. You know, there will be mayhem inside Saudi Arabia. Even ruthless repression by the monarchy won't stop people's feelings. I mean, people are angry. Um, and as I said, if the death toll goes to 20, 25,000, I don't know how people will react, especially if there's no ceasefire. And then the second thing that fell off the table were the Abraham Accords. Now, most people believe that not only Saudi Arabia, which actually has developed links to China and has got another pathway for itself, not only Saudi Arabia is not interested, but might maybe Morocco will have a hard time going through with this. In Morocco, it's hard for Morocco to walk out of this, partly because it, like the quid pro quo, that its um, colonization of Western Sahara would now be guaranteed. So the quid pro quo worked for, 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 for Morocco. So Morocco... It's harder to break with the Abraham Accords. Saudi Arabia, I don't think it's going to happen. I don't think they're going to sign the dotted line to normalize with Israel. So Israel is actually at the end of this, may kill 20, 30,000 Palestinians, might even end up destroying a lot of the infrastructure of Hamas. But Israel is going to be fundamentally isolated. At the end of the day, the Israelis are going to have to live in that neighborhood. And you know, they don't seem to care that they're getting isolated. They think that if they clobber Hamas, that's going to guarantee their security. I don't think so. I think if you're, you're going to have generations now who remember the events of 2023, you know, like we remember 2014 Operation Protective Edge. Before that, the grotesque Operation Cast Lead of 2008-09. And then we can keep going backwards, you know, go backwards to the second intifada when Ariel Sharon went extremely provocatively to the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. Um, you know, really a very provocative action saying, you know, Jerusalem is, is Israel's. And then before that, the first intifada, 87, when the Palestinians rose up 
saying, look, what's happening here? We have completely been forgotten. Um, the events that led to the Oslo Accords. You know, we can remember these punctual instances of protest rising up and then crushing repression from the Israeli state. People arrested, thrown into prison, children arrested, thrown into prison and so on. You and I can remember this. But now think about this. New generations, you know, people who are now in their teens will remember the events of 2023 for the next 70 years. Richard, wow. this is not going to be forgotten, which means every picture of a child that is out there on social media has gripped the imagination of a young person around the world who is beginning to dislike Israel greatly. So I don't see how Mr. Netanyahu's calculation works. This massacre of the Palestinians, what people are calling a genocide, this is not going to make you more secure. It's in fact going to make you far, far more isolated. And there's another dimension of this uh, this uh, failure to achieve security with this. Uh, I, I that's you know extremely uh, insightful and helpful. But the other, and you know, I am here in the U.S. observing the U.S. The other, it seems to me, is that this will whatever the temporary polls have said about support for israel and so on younger people in the united states including younger jews other populations uh are losing uh their desire to support israel and all this i think this will accelerate that and to me the combination of uh, uh the antagonism that israel has created really in, in many parts of the world and especially in the middle east uh combined with the uh the loss of resolve for supporting it in the u.s that strikes me i wonder whether at some point you know it's not entirely clear i i know that the u.s gives israel billions and billions of dollars uh much of it for if not most of it for um for military aid although it's also worth noting that israel has uh government provided health care in the united states doesn't but uh at some point it, it seems to me that it may become politically and not soon necessarily but at some point as generations shift and so on it may be that the u.s is no longer willing to support israel uh the way it has been and if you agree with that assessment which i think is could be is being accelerated by israel's behavior now then that it strikes me that could be a kind of a pincer effect where hostility increases in the region and this external uh, military and sort of coercive support of the united states diminishes at the same time do you think that's a realistic scenario or possible scenario at all See, we need to understand firstly why the United States supports Israel. I think to ask the question, could it not support it? Uh, you first need to understand why does it support Israel? You know, that's a fair question. Um, there are several interpretations that are available. You know, one of them is that indeed Israel provides the United States with the kind of battleship uh, in the, um, you know, uh, western flank of Asia in the same way as maybe sections of Japan, South Korea, and so on, provide a battleship, you know, a land-based uh, vehicle to manage chaos in the region. Now, over time, it looks like 
Israel is doing the opposite of managing chaos. You know, it's it's actually creating more and more chaos. Whereas you could make the argument that South Korea, Japan, and so on have maintained the U.S. order a little bit. Um, one argument is that that Israel actually plays the role of a kind of offshore military installation um, in West Asia, keeps many of the 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 you know the the kind of counter U.S. Uh, regimes in check. That's one argument. The second argument is, of course, that Europe and the United States feel some sense of guilt burden uh, for the history of what happened to Jews in Europe in the Holocaust and so on. Now, this is not a credible argument to me, frankly. I think here the United States and European politicians mainly play lip service to this because if they were serious about anti-Semitism and expo culpating their guilt for the Holocaust, they would deal with the actual anti-Semitism in their societies. You know, in Germany, they still haven't dealt with the actual roots of the Nazi past. You know, you've got these Nazi groups still roaming around. You know, they banned Nazi organizations, but they haven't gone in and done a serious, um, you know, uprooting of some of the problems that constitute you know, this kind of ultra right wing nationalism, hatred of immigrants, hatred of outsiders, you know, the Auslander and, and all that stuff, that language just appears now against Muslims in Germany, just like this, you know. So I don't think they're serious about exculpating guilt for the Holocaust, but that's the language they use. And then thirdly, I get and I understand fundamentally the fear that is there in the Jewish diaspora. I get that. I understand that. There is a lingering generational fear of, you know, there was once a Holocaust and there might be another one. I get that. That's a real feeling. You know, then that has been constituted amongst um, the Jewish diaspora as a feeling. You know, that is what is, is trained. Children are told this. They hold the memory of the Holocaust. And so that fear is there, you know. But the issue is, what are you afraid of? I mean, you know, the, the Arabs didn't conduct a Holocaust. The Arabs didn't kill the six million Jews. That was the Europeans. Most of the worst anti-Semitic pogroms happen in Central and Eastern Europe. Um, and then, of course, there's the polite forms of anti-Semitism in the United States and in Britain and in Western Europe. You know, it's much more polite form of racism. You may not have had a pogrom, but you certainly had terrible attitudes towards Jewish migrants and so on. Arabs, on the other hand, for centuries lived alongside Jews. The Arab, Jewish, and sorry, the, the, the Muslim, Christian, and Jewish Palestinian population, you know, in Palestine, um, Jews were known as Palestinian Jews. There were Palestinian Muslims, Palestinian Jews, and Palestinian Christians, you know, um, and then because of the rising anti-Semitism in Europe, uh, Jewish populations from Europe began to come and settle in historical Palestine. And you started to see problems, including between the incoming Jewish settlers from Europe and the Palestinian Jews. There were also conflicts, you know, because they were like, what are you doing here now? You know, um, you, you're, you were somewhere else. There are also currents inside the world of the Jewish diaspora, um, which were against Zionism, saying that, no, we want to stay outside. We don't want a Jewish state. We want to have a communion with God. Sections of the Hashidim population have very strong opinions about Zionism. So all I'm saying is that, yes, I understand very much the fear that has been 
um, you know, inculcated uh, from a real event, the Holocaust. But that fear now is transferred onto Arabs. And I think that is something that requires healing. You know, the community needs to reflect on this. It's not the Palestinians who want the death of the Jewish population. They want to live side by side. They want to live as equal citizens. And here's that's the rub of it. Because of this, um, there is this, this fear, this idea that security is more important than community. You know, trying to build a community in the Levant region has been set aside and security has eclipsed everything else. For that reason, United States and other countries, um, they hold fast to that. Now, I believe that this argument that we stand with Israel is actually a fig leaf. The real thing is the United States is committed to having a battleship in West Asia. Um, you know, come on, the U.S. elite is not, you know, suddenly become completely pro-Jewish or not anymore anti-Semitic. You know, anti-Semitism is alive and well in the United States. And it's not among people who are pro-Palestinian. It's among sections of the elite. You know, they harbor a lot of these old ideas. They are there. We have all experienced them one way or the other. You know, it's not people who are pro-Palestinian. They are pro-Palestinian. That doesn't mean they are against Jews. They are you know, for creating some sort of community in the Levant. So for these complicated reasons, and I, I give it to you, Richard, that what I've talked about is very much a jumble. And the reason is because it's in this jumble that the United States has articulated this position, we stand with Israel, which means that this ruling elite in the U.S. is never going to break with Israel. Now, 66%, I'm told, I saw a poll of the right. U.S. population is for a ceasefire. Mr. Biden, reflecting that public opinion, has now called for a pause. You know, they are they have no guts. They say a pause in, in the Chile. The Israelis are saying, we don't care about your pause. We don't care about your ceasefire. It will be to be seen in time whether the Israeli refusal to even do a pause is going to further break relations. Um, between the publics of the world and the Israeli government, we will see. Because now that the Americans have come in and said a pause, you know, this United States, which has said there are no red lines to the U.S., uh, the Israeli campaign in Gaza. That's what James Kirby said, spokesperson for the National Security Council. No red lines, he said. OK, you said no red lines, but now you're seeing a pause. And if now you are saying a pause, which is a big thing for Biden to say, and if the Israelis say we're not pausing at all, well, that's interesting. Now we come to a different stage in this, where Israel basically says we don't care what anybody tells us. We're going to do our thing um, because, you know, we need to get our objectives done and so on. And I must say that within the United States, there's a lot of support for the Israeli position. Hillary Clinton has said effective, she said on television that, look, all this question of ceasefire out of the question, because a ceasefire simply means that Hamas will regroup. That's what Hillary Clinton said. There's a scene there. Lindsey Graham, I watched him on television say that, you know, I, I don't care how many Palestinians are killed. Um, Hamas has to be destroyed. You know, if it's going to be in the tens of thousands, so be it. Um, on the New Yorker radio hour, I was, I want to, reflect on this a minute. David Renmick, you know, this is this is the highest um, periodical of American liberalism, you know, and David Renmick is like 
the god of liberalism for you know i mean it's the journal that all liberals like to subscribe right. to right. and in the evening pour a glass of nice well maybe not french wine anymore maybe chilean wine sit in their living rooms and they read the new yorker you know listen to the new yorker radio hour you know and in a typical liberal way he had on a palestinian philosopher sari nusaben very interesting man but he also had yonit levy who's a, a television personality from israel and yonit levy in the show said something so boldly she said that there is no moral equivalence between 1400 israelis killed and at the time 4500 palestinians no moral equivalence you know in other words you can kill many more palestinians israeli life is more precious and david renmick didn't even challenge her he just let that go and that suggests to me that there is a lot of incipient support in the united states for letting israel do what it wants and there'll be no price to be paid well a couple uh, just quick observations when i sent out a mass mailing a couple of days ago was just uh, asking people to call their uh, member of congress ask for a ceasefire i was amazed at how many people said uh no because hamas is evil as if a 2-year-old is a member of hamas just widespread and utter disregard for life another though uh you know uh, my father's family was jewish his parents escaped from the pogroms in what was then russia now ukraine uh the spiritual descendants of the people who burned their homes are in the azov battalion now getting us aid so it's hard for me to believe that antisemitism is the motivating factor here but it seems to me that at some point there's going to be uh, you know this thread is going to run out one way or another perhaps I'm wrong perhaps this will go on for uh, for a century i you know but it, it seems to me that the palestinians are not going to give up that the idea that you can slaughter your way into solving the problem that israeli plan that think tank plan that came out that said well we'll kill a bunch of them and then the rest will go through rafah to egypt and live in the sinai it doesn't strike me that that as horrific as it would be i mean that would be a resolution i guess of gaza but it doesn't strike me that this is going to go away because far the palestinians are determined far too many people around the world support them and you know i mean you don't have a crystal ball either i assume but is i i just wonder you know if there's going to if there's any chance for a break a shift uh you know ideally of course in a positive direction at any point i mean you know obviously people like you and i will say yes of course there's going to be a break you know that tonight um it will become clear somehow to the cabinet maybe benny gants finally will decide that he's not really a likud member and he comes from the labor tradition and now that he's in the government you know they created a government of national unity the whole opposition joined the government netanyahu was clever he brought them all in and said you were all basically going to be responsible for this war no politics here maybe benigans will grow a backbone and say look we've got to have a pause the americans are telling us maybe maybe somebody is going to say this in the meetings i doubt it you know there's a lot of people on the hard right in that cabinet um there are people in public saying things like we're just going to get rid of the animals referring to the palestinians right. we're going to get them out 
let them go to the sinai people are saying you know genocidal right. ethnic cleansing things these are all this is all the words of of uh, of 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 you know a war crime i mean what's stunning to me the hypocrisy is you know putin is accused of transferring children out of the war zone into russia for which reason he was given an icc warrant for transferring children from the war zone into russia okay it's population transfer yes it applies blah 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 4000 plus children killed here and not a whiff of a warrant at the icc qc karim khan who's the lead prosecutor the icc was at rafa crossing made some very strong statements about allowing humanitarian aid in. but you know qc karim khan what about the dead children does that not constitute a war crime such that it raises to the level that you at least say that there are war crimes committed and we will now go back to the hague and consider a warrant with putin they did the warrant overnight well that's uh, certainly true and of course we've seen people resign from uh the international legal system now as, as because of the the application of law there i guess uh, just a, you know a final word on the uh on the humanitarian pause so called uh, they were very specific today uh thursday uh, or what i read today thursday uh, about the idea that it would be very brief in other words we'll slaughter your family but we'll take a pause in slaughtering your family we'll give you a, i don't know bag a, a bag lunch or something then we'll resume and it, i can see israel saying okay 24 hours and then we'll start again but but uh without uh, you know it strikes me in the long run uh of course the human victims are paramount but the us's fantasy of being a leader of a global influence i to me this is just further this is accelerating the erosion of the uh, american empire at least in its soft power form that's my conclusion i don't know if it's yours but well richard look as we speak just hours before we are speaking the united nations general assembly voted for the 31st time on the us illegal embargo of cuba 187 countries voted to end the embargo that's interesting including the united kingdom very many nato countries said to the united states end the illegal embargo on cuba three countries didn't join the rest of the world and they are interesting ukraine abstained the only country to abstain was ukraine and two countries voted against breaking the embargo of cuba united states obviously and israel mm. so we've got united states israel and ukraine standing against the world tell me this is not a sign of something it is uh, it is definitely a sign of something and uh, unfortunately we're going to have to uh, going to have to leave it there but uh, developments are moving quickly uh, thanks for this this was really insightful again my guest vijay prashad director of the tricontinental institute for social research uh vj thanks for your great work in this and as always thanks for joining us it's a pleasure thanks a lot and we'll be right back after this i'm richard rj escal and this is the zero hour